today is going to be a little bit different than it normally is as we're celebrating our sixth birthday. And uh, what we want to do this morning is just sort of hit pause and reflect on where we're at as a church. And, um, you know, especially as we're, as we're coming up to this milestone. Milestones are good. These mile markers are good. They give us an idea of where we're currently at and give us and sort of remind us that we've come from some other place. And yet we are still moving forward. But as we come to this milestone, we wanted to sort of, sort of like take inventory, look around, rem- be reminded of various things, and sort of celebrate uh, where we've come from and what the Lord is bringing us to. And uh, I know we have some people that are out of town this weekend, but I thought we, if you could just humor me for a second, I wanted to do something that might be a little bit strange. But uh, I just want to ask, if uh, we planted the church in, in the fall of 2015... And for the previous 14 months, we were cultivating and gathering together a small group of people. Uh, well, I guess it started out as small, and we just were meeting every week to pray. And that was the lead up to our launch in October, mid-October of 2015. If you, if anyone here was a part of that original group pre-launch during, the, during those 14 months of meeting weekly for prayer, is there anybody here this morning that was part of that. I need you guys to stand. Whoever was there, just stand up for a second. Please. All right. Wait, 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 wait. Don't get all weird. Keep standing, please, if you would. If you joined us in our first year, so that would have been October 2015 to October 2016, please stand. If there's anyone here. Year one. Anyone join us in our first year? All right. Now, I know as we get into this, you might not remember the actual dates, but if you joined us in late 2016 and through most of 2017, leading up to October, if you, if you think you joined our church family during that time, please stand. Is anyone here? Just the people at the back? Okay, cool. <laughs> All right, moving on. If you joined us in... Late, so from October 2018 to October 2019, please stand. Our teaching pastor, nice. (laughs) All right, and if you joined us in late 2019, so from October 2019 through uh, October of 2020, please stand up. All right. And if you joined us sometime in the last 12 months, including if you're visiting today, and this is your first time here. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you join us in the last year, including if you're visiting today, please stand up. That should probably cover everybody. <laughs> now, I want you guys to look around for a second. I want you to see the faces that are around you. The people that are around you, you might not know. The people that are around you, you might know. If they are followers of Jesus and have placed their faith in Jesus, I want to remind you that they are your brothers and your sisters. Whether you know them or not, there might be someone that you're scanning the room and looking at and thinking, oh, I kind of know them. I see them around. I forget their name. I met them eight weeks ago, and it's really awkward now for me to ask them what their name is, so I'm not going to ask them. You might not be close relationally with them, but they are your brothers and sisters. 
There may be people in this room right now that you have relational strain with. Maybe you've had some drama. I want to remind you that they are your brothers mm. and your sisters. Mm. There may be people in the room, as you look around, there might be people in the room right now that have never been here before. This is their first time here. Maybe they're not even a follower of Jesus. And in that sense, maybe they are not our spiritual brothers and sisters, but we welcome them, and we, we, we want to love them and serve them and point them to Jesus. This is what it means to be a collective family. And the unity that we have right now in, the, in, the, in this image that we have right now of being able to stand together in unity is how we want to move forward as a church. It's how we want to move forward into our seventh and eighth and ninth and tenth year for as long as the Lord would have us and sustain us as a local church. I'll leave you with that. You may be seated. If you joined us um, and became a part of this more recently, I want, to, I want you to know that you have come into something that has a history. It's a short history, granted, but it's a history Nonetheless, and I want you to know, as those that have been around for a while, I want to testify and relay and convey that we have experienced the faithfulness of God in our six short years. We've seen people come to faith. We've seen healings. We've seen last-minute answers to prayer. We've endured mind-numbing searches for venues and, and some of you are groaning inwardly because you were a part of those searches. But we have seen the faithfulness of God throughout it all. And we're not a perfect church. We don't pretend to be. We want to be pretty open with our brokenness. We want to be pretty honest with the ways that we all need Jesus. But we're working through our issues. We are running towards Jesus. We, we don't seek to present like this perfectly uh, crafted package. What we're trying to do is be a church family that comes with drama at times, that, that comes with messiness, and sort of acknowledge that messiness. It's like, okay, cool, let's figure this out as brothers and sisters. Let's move forward in following Jesus together. Collective Church started with people who, were share, who, who shared the same mission and vision, and that was to reach people and make disciples on the west side. And that will never change, and I promise you that we're going to stay the course. And as those that have been around for the, over the last six-plus years, you know that we've been constantly banging that drum throughout our whole history, and we're going to continue to bang that drum. And we don't want to drift from the calling that God has placed upon our lives. When, when, we, when we planted the church, people had lots of questions about what collective church is about and why the West Side needed another church and all of that. And we would sit down with people and explain to people what Collective Church was all about and the vision and the burden that God had placed on our hearts. And our question to them was, if you share that mission and the vision and that burden, if that resonates in your heart and you want to be a part of that, then we welcome you to be a part of this. What we weren't trying to do is provide people with an alternative place to gather on Sunday mornings, where if you're kind of tired of the church you're already a part of, then come on down. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't what this was about. It was about, do you want to be on mission with us on the, on the west side? Do you want to reach people and make disciples on the west side? Are you in this with us? Do you want to be a collective family? And we invited people into that. A lot of people have sacrificed for this. 
A lot of people have given their finances and served over the years to help make this a reality. And so even if you're newer to Collective, I want you to know about that history of people who've, who've served selflessly and sacrificially, the people that have given um, sacrificially with their finances to help us be able to be here on a Sunday, to still be here six years in. And as we turn six, we have now come through the worst of the pandemic. We all know that. I don't have to remind you. Uh, we've come through, at this stage, we've come through the worst of it. Last year, we were still only in online service. We were not gathering. Uh, at that time, we were unable to gather. And we're at this, this space in our history right now as we turn six, where we have the opportunity to sort of recalibrate. Maybe that's the best way I can say it. Sort of just recalibrate and figure out what kind of church are we going to be? And that doesn't mean that anything about our mission and vision has gone old or stale or needs to be changed in that regard. I mean, we get our marching orders from Jesus, from Matthew 28 and the Great Commission, where he basically told us, and he, to summarize and paraphrase, it boils down to reaching people and making disciples. That's never going to change. But as far as our own involvement in that and the part that we play within the mission of God as a spiritual family that is stewarding our resources to engage the mission, uh, what part are you going to play? What part are we going to play? How are you going to contribute to the contribution of another? <clears throat> Meaning, how are you going to stir one another up towards love and good deeds, as Hebrews chapter 10 talks about? How are you going to love and serve one another? How are you going to fulfill what we receive in Scripture where Jesus said that, that essentially that the world is going to know you by the way that you love one another. And I always find it so fascinating that he didn't say the world is going to know that you are mine because of the way that you love them. Jesus said the world, you know that you, well, the world will know you belong to me because of the way that you love one another. What's that going to look like for us as a collective church family? Now, I'm not saying that we're horribly failing that at all. What I'm saying is let's make it that. Let's, let's be a family that doesn't have it all figured out, that isn't perfect, that has drama, that has to work through some things. But let's be crystal clear that we're a spiritual family and we're on mission for Jesus. This morning, we're going to revisit um, some of our four core identities for what it means to be a disciple that follows Jesus. And we sort of identified these and, and uh, worked through these a few years ago. But as we move into our seventh year, we want to have this recent reminder of, of what we're seeking to be and what we're still becoming. Pastor Ryan is going to kick it off in a minute uh, as we look at what it means to be responsible followers of Jesus. And then Pastor Isaac is going to come. Yeah, we're going to break this up into segments. <laughs> This is going to be fun. But Pastor Isaac's going to come and then after Ryan and, and, and look at what it means to be responsible family members. And then I'm going to cover what it looks like to be responsible stewards. And then Pastor Ryan is going to come back up to finish it out looking at our calling to be responsible disciple makers. So that's what's uh, the plan for today. And so without further ado, I'm going to have Pastor Ryan come up and kick it off. <laughs> Good morning. morning. Happy birthday. I've got cupcakes under all of your seats if you want to look down and grab the gotcha. There's no cupcakes. Uh, collective Church, as Pastor Lorenzo said, 
is a community of followers of Jesus. Following Jesus is the defining marker of every single thing that we do. And our hope is to foster and to form a community where people from all walks of life can come with all of their, like Lorenzo just said, all of their mess, and we can together, one step at a time, move further into a life of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and joining his mission. I've been contemplating this identity, this aim of being followers of Jesus as we approach our sixth birthday over the past few weeks, specifically asking this question, following Jesus into what? Following him how? Because I could easily get up here and, and give kind of the pat answers of, you know, we follow Jesus by loving God and loving our neighbor, of being people of the word and prayer and obedience and down goes the line. But genuinely, the question that's sitting before us, what does it mean for us as collective church on the west side of Los Angeles in 2021 to be followers of Jesus? With all of those little, you know, adjective-defining changes that we're not just some amorphous blob of followers of Jesus. We are on the west side of Los Angeles. We are in the year 2021. We're not just any church on the west side of Los Angeles in 2021. We are collective. And with all of those varying indicators and, and markers, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus? Because those markers, when you bring all that together and consider it, what you find is that, like Lo said, we are emerging from a pandemic. A year for many of us of, of will-breaking isolation. We continue to watch not only in our own backyard, but around the world, natural disasters. The relational continued polarization between uh, not just society, but even family members. The disintegration of politics and of economics and commerce. The reckoning of racial injustice in the history of our nation. All of this has been built up to and is what we're bringing now to the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? in light of all of this. And it's no surprise that in the wake of all we've seen, 56% of young people think humanity is doomed. 56, that is the majority of, and I don't know if young people is like, you know, I, I, I don't know what I'm considered anymore. I'm in that weird space now. I'm like, I don't know what I am. <laughs> young people think I'm weird. Like, what is young anymore? But regardless, here you have the majority of whoever is coming up into owning and, and, and leading and having this world by the reins in the generation to come is not looking to the future with anticipation and hope. They think the story's over. You know, Bo Burnham's song, that funny feeling again is, you know, he ends with seven years to go in this whole thing. And then when you add within all of that mess of what we're living within, you look at what's happening within the church, specifically the American church, is it's not been immune to these waves and what's going on. Because within the American church, over ethnic, socioeconomic, background, political, and theological traditions, we're in this moment where so many are, are working through for themselves this deep wrestling of what does it mean to follow Jesus right here in 2021, not just on the west side, but all around our country. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And for many of them, in this process that's been coined as deconstruction, it has led to them uh, walking away either from the local church walking away from a communal life in the spirit of Jesus, and, and ultimately to walking away from the faith itself. So here's what I'm saying. In the midst of all of this, I don't think that we can pretend that the same old pat answers of just generalized calls for what it means to follow Jesus will work. We need to specifically ask, what does it mean for the church to follow Jesus here and now? We've all been touched in some ways by all of these things over the past year. 
all of these global things on top of our own personal loss and mourning and grief and pain and failures, what does it mean to follow Jesus here? Amid our disappointment, our uncertainty, our confusion, our doubt, our questioning, our loss and fear, what does it mean to follow Jesus? We are in desperate need of a vision for following Jesus within our lifetime, a guiding framework so we might remain faithful to what Jesus has called us to do and who he's called us to be, representatives of his love and his life in the city of Los Angeles. We need that vision for what does it mean. Or as Proverbs 29 verse 18 would put it, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who keeps the law. Where there's no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. The word can be translated as they, they let go. They, they, some translators put it as they get dis, people get discouraged. Where there's no prophetic vision. Now, when we hear prophetic vision, many of us are prone to think of fortune telling and predictions of coming events. And though prophetic vision sometimes enable and, and, and works within that in the biblical story, most often in the Bible, prophetic vision is used to talk about a renewed perception, not of the future, but of the present. Prophetic vision is the invitation to see your right now and your right here from God's perspective. And we need this vantage point of God's perception because looks can be deceiving. In our lives, we can be prone to seeing our, our seasons of comfort as evidence that we've arrived and our seasons of discomfort as indicative that we're on the losing side. That in following Jesus, we back the wrong horse. You see, our looks can be deceiving in our lives. And so we need something bigger than that. We need that prophetic vision. And in this current moment, it's, it's that, that ladder, that, that feeling like we've backed the wrong horse, the, the feeling like we're, we're failing or we're, we're not. In following Jesus, we've chosen the wrong thing. Because based off what we're going through in this moment... It could cause us to cast off restraint, like I said, to let go of that calling that we have, to become discouraged in it, to cast off that, that following of Jesus, either by taking one of two postures that I think is before many Christians today. And without prophetic vision, this is where we can go as individuals and as a church. We can either go into siege or surrender mentality, both of which are a fundamental casting off of what it means to be the followers of Jesus. The siege mentality sees, oh, look at what's going on within the world and within the church, and, and Christians take on an overly defensive posture. We become insular and focused only on our little thing, and we see the world as bad and us as good, and we become solely focused to siege mentality. We batten down the hatches because of the cultural storms. To do this is to throw off the calling we have as followers of Jesus. But similarly, on the other side, and in a city like Los Angeles, we're more prone to is a surrender mentality where we seek in order to ride within the waves of what is comfortable and what seems right and what's good, that we throw off the very calling that we have of our life to follow and represent Jesus within the city of Los Angeles. See, without a prophetic vision, we can be prone to a siege or a surrender mentality, but we are called to something more, a prophetic vision that enables us to see things differently. We're in desperate need of that. For God to help us see this present moment from his eyes so we can follow him into the future. And so over the past year, this has been a guiding desire for our pastoral team, for Lorenzo and Isaac and myself, of just asking, God, how are we to see this moment so we can best serve you, we can best serve your people, 
we can best serve our city, we can best serve the world. How are we meant to see this? I mean, on the other side of prayers and conversations of journaling, and yes, even dreams, we're one of those churches, is a prophetic vision that we believe is worth setting before our community today and detailing a little bit. Earlier this year, uh, our pastors, we uh, headed up to Big Bear for a few days in a, a cauldron of prayer and seeking for that vision. And I call it a cauldron not only because it was a place of melting down and and uh, stewing, but because we um, booked a cabin without AC during a California heat wave. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to say who booked it, but Lorenzo was really sorry. <laughs> so as we got up to our, our hot cabin, we, um, we, that, that, that first night, you know, with all the windows open and trying to get as much breeze as we could, we came down the next morning with coffee in hand. As we began to kind of talk through, like, what, what does this prophet, what does it feel like that God's inviting us to see the present in, 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 from his perspective on? And, you know, Lorenz was like, hey, it might have been the heat last night, but um, I, I had a dream, and I just want to set this before us to kind of just chew on and process. So, you know, me and Isaac, okay, cool. We, we invite that within our church. We think that the Spirit regularly speaks through dreams, not every single one. Sometimes it's just you ate Taco Bell, and you shouldn't have. <laughs> but sometimes the Spirit does. And so, okay, let's see, is this, what is this? And so Lorenzo began to detail this dream that he had the night before where he saw this field being uh, agitated, like a, like a farming field, being agitated and upset and specifically punctured repeatedly. He was like, it was like this sewing machine that was going through this field and just drilling holes throughout all of it. And it appeared like nothing more than just destruction of just this, 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 this you know, what's the purpose of this, this field just being punctured over and over again all throughout? But then on the other side of that kind of destruction, there was this vision of kind of, uh, you know, walking through that same field now with new growth literally springing up in the wake of your footsteps. That as you, you know, lifted your foot and took one step forward, right where your foot was, growth coming up. And so Lorenzo kind of said, he's like, you know, I've been contemplating this even before you guys woke up of what this means. He's like, I'm, I'm definitely certain that that agitation is kind of what we've been through over the past year. And there's some hope of future growth, but the relationship between the two, he was kind of like, I'm, I'm not sure. Now, coincidentally, or, or not so coincidentally, my plant dad self, as many of you know, I had spent the day before the retreat walking through my house uh, with chopsticks and knitting needles, stabbing all of my house plants. And this was not to like let out some kind of like, you know, pent up aggression that I had, where I was just like, I hate my fiddle leaf pig, like, you know, going on. The point of agitating and puncturing the soil was so interesting that Lo would bring this because I had just spent like an hour doing that the day before, going through all my plants. And like I said, this wasn't for pen, you know, releasing pent-up anger. This is the necessary work in agriculture of what's called aeration. Many of you know about aeration because you grew up in, in places that had lawns, and they would go over with these machines that would bring out all of those little grass and dirt cores. There were grenades. You used to throw them at your siblings. No? That was me. Yes, thank you. I see that hand. And so for a few good minutes at our elder retreat, we started talking about the process of aerating a field. We're getting on Wikipedia, and we're like researching more about aeration. What is this process? Whether that's for a field or a houseplant pot. And so the purpose of that seemingly destructive act of going through a field, a lawn, or a fiddle leaf fig is, is ultimately the long-term health of the plant. By puncturing that soil, you create the space not just for the water to seep down in ways that it doesn't get overly compact where the water no longer gets into the soil, but it also gives space for the roots to grow and strengthen in ways they never would have. 
So this is why a field that regularly has cows doing the aerating naturally with their, with their feet, hooves, leads to grass that is stronger and doesn't get pulled up by wind or by water or just pulled out. It gets deep roots and it stays strong. Aeration, that seemingly disastrous agitation of the field, leads to long-term grounded roots and a receptivity to the water it would not have had without it. And so as we begin to detail this and praying and talking over it, we're, we're convinced Lowe's vision of that new growth springing up behind us as we walk is not something separate from the agitation that we've experienced over the past year. It's because of it. That whatever has been punctured in you and me and brought up and agitated and revealed, that in those cores left within our, our souls or our lives, our church or our world, are the very places where life and spirit and growth wants to show up in new ways. You hear me? This is what we believe is before us here. Now the question then stands, what is being torn up and what is that nature of the new growth in this prophetic vision? Because we can fill in whatever we want with the thing that was pulled out of us. Like I just hate Zoom. That's the thing I found out last year. I don't think that's what the Spirit's inviting us into. What has been torn up and to think prophetically, not just me personally, but us corporately and us as a part of the American church, what has been torn up and seen over the past year and what needs to grow in new ways in its wake? If the church's primary calling is to be a, a community of responsible followers of Jesus, and the way that I'm going to be saying this over and over again for the next few minutes is by responsible, what I mean is responsible for ourselves and responsible for one another, that is that we are unified and maturing followers of Jesus. If that is what our calling has, is, then it is precisely well, I believe and what we've talked through in our Ephesians series and even as our elders, what has been agitated and pulled up and revealed within the American church, within myself and you, is what this has shown us. That the American church at large has largely not been a unified and maturing community of followers of Jesus, but a loose affiliation of individualist and immature fans of Jesus. Let me say this again. A loose affiliation of individualist and immature fans of Jesus. Now, here's the thing. We're, we've got all, all of us coming up here. I can detail this more, and I did, and I cut it from my notes for the sake of time. You know within yourself, and even for those of you that are here and you don't identify as a Christian and you're just checking things out, they, more than some of us that are a part of the church, looking at the Christian story within our nation, they might see it more readily. When I look at the, and imagine the church from an outsider's perspective, I, I don't see this community of people that are unified over Jesus at, at the expense of anything else, of people that are mature in the way that they handle things like truth and love and, and, and compassion. I, I don't see that, and I, and, I, and I certainly don't see a community of family members. I see a loose affiliation where they jump in and show up at their own level of desire. But here's the thing, I, I don't want our birthday party to be me coming and like, enjoy your cake, like you suck or something like that. <laughs> here's the thing, my point in this moment is not necessarily to bring prophetic conviction. I believe that's happened in Ephesians, if you go back and listen to that series, and, and there's going to be more time for that. My point today is that if it is our individualism and immaturity that's been pulled out and revealed over the past year, then it is precisely that, that maturity and unity that I believe is that new growth that the Spirit wants to do within our community. 
So we need to set our attention wholeheartedly to responsible follower of Jesus, one who is responsible for myself. I'm taking responsibility. I'm maturing and growing in my following of Jesus. I'm not looking for anybody else to do that for me, that I am responsible for the life that I have with Jesus. But also, and paradoxically, in unity, me saying, and I want to be responsible for the growth and the life of others as well. That the church is not built around me, or my own walk with Jesus is not built around me. It's built around caring and serving and loving others. This is, I think, the big invitation for our community. So Lorenzo and Isaac are going to detail these in a little bit more, unity and maturity with stewardship and community in just a moment. But a couple, two little things before I hand it over to Isaac. My first note is this. I want to celebrate how many of you, in the midst of all this year, has thrown at you both globally and personally with losses too long to name and too great to bear, seemingly. You have responded to leaning even further into Jesus and his work in and through you. Story after story that is so encouraging to get to sit. And that's part of being a pastor is not just being like a leader, but I get to sit on the sidelines and get a front row seat to the work that God is doing by his spirit in each and every one of you. And I am so grateful for God's work in you, but also your receptivity for that. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, you'll see it behind me. He writes about the church in Thessalonica. We ought always to give thanks for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you and for one another is increasing. We ourselves boast about you for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is what so many of you revealed yourself to be right in step with, and we are so grateful that we get to see that and celebrate that. Now, like I said, at the same time, if it is a, the maturity, the immaturity in that individualism that's being turned over and revealed, then it's precisely that maturity and unity that we need to lean into. And so the first way, before we get to Isaac and Lorenzo, comes back to how do we lean into that unity and maturity? It takes us back to Proverbs 29, verse 18, where it said, blessed is the one who keeps the law. This is not Proverbs' call for us to obey the speed limit, but the law is in the teaching of God, is found in the word of God, is found in the Bible. The scripture is the Holy Spirit, God's desired tool of choice in guiding you and me into greater maturity and unity. If we open our lives to him as he reveals himself in his word, God promises that new growth that you're looking for will be experienced. Or as Psalm 1 develops Proverbs 29, you'll see it behind me. Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law they meditate day and night. They become, they are like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that they do, they prosper. For those who turn from the counsel, the way, the company of the wicked, the sinners, the scoffer, we could call it the immature and the individualist, and we turn to the law of God, we set that as the, the delight of our hearts and the meditation of our days. We become what someone says could only be described as a tree of life. And for all of our talk about wisdom as the tree of life over the past few months in Proverbs, Psalm 1 is saying that not only is God's wisdom a tree of life, of experiencing the fullness of who God is, when you meditate on and delight in God's wisdom, you become a tree of life yourself. 
you start uh, overflowing with that very life and rest and abundance that God has revealed in his word, you become a source of that in your world. And I don't know about you, but after the season I've gone through, in all they do, they do not wither but prosper. They are bearing fruit in season. I want some of that in my life. That's what I'm hungry for. That's the kind of community I want to be a part of, one that, that, that sets its source and its experience of life within the west side of Los Angeles because of the fact that we are so committed to the wisdom and way of Jesus, and we're meditating on the scriptures and allowing them to shape us into that kind of people. I believe this is the prophetic vision that's worth detailing and setting before ourselves. Unity and maturity, and the first key being as followers of Jesus, looking deeper into the word. And so in the coming year, we're going to continue that. Through meditating on scripture, through our integrated Bible study process that we have been using over the years, with personal meditation through our weekly Bible passage that's always on Instagram or on our website every week that you can jump in and spend time on that passage, then gathering on our Sundays for a gathered proclamation of the word, and then communal application in our weekly discipleship groups. That process is what you and I are invited into. Do you want that growth? Do you want to become that sort of living person? Meditation of scripture, abiding in this is the way to do just that. And we believe through our integrated Bible process, what we call here, I know that sounds super fancy, it's basically reading the Bible by yourself, gathering with each one another to see it on, on Sundays, and then talking about what do we now do with this on a weekly basis. We're going to keep doing that through teaching series and even through classes in the years to come, in the year to come. And so as a little bit of a, a teaser trailer for the year to come, where are we going to be teaching? What are we going to be looking at in Scripture? After uh, the book of Proverbs, we're going to be ending this around Thanksgiving. We're going to be spending uh, our kind of Christmas time in the songs of Christmas from the Gospel of Luke, specifically looking at the unifying hope, unifying hope of the Christmas season for our community. As we enter into 2022, we're going to be looking at uh, the priestly blessing that we end every single week with. That blessing from number six, we're going to do a deep dive into that, uh, where that comes from in Numbers chapter six, um, to look at a paradigm for our unified life of our church, a life of a community of blessing. After that, we're going to be going into the book of Ecclesiastes, Proverbs Neighbor, in a series that I'm tentatively calling De Deconstructing Los Angeles, where we're going to be taking that deconstructing kind of um, a vision and mission that we have within us currently, and we're going to be actually going after the assumed presumptions that we have about the good life given to us by Los Angeles. Ecclesiastes is going to cut this all down. It's going to be a season of maturity, I think, not only for each of us, but also, I hope, an invitation for the people of our city to kind of poke around and ask questions about their assumptions of the good life. After Ecclesiastes, we come to Easter, and then we're going to do a series called Peculiar People. We'll be looking at the unified mission of the early church. What set apart that, those communities in and around Rome 2,000 years ago, and what would it look like for us to recapture that unified mission for ourselves? After that, our big um, little summer series plan is we're going to be looking at the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, looking for him as a roadmap to mature faith. How do we grow up in this thing of following Jesus? Abraham is going to be our paradigm and our, our kind of guide. And then finally, our fall big series is going to be how not to read the Bible, where we are going to deconstruct everything you think about the Bible and put it back together again. I'm planning on having classes alongside these where you can bring the topics that you're wrestling with, and we on a monthly or however regularly you want to do this basis, we will work together in a large kind of classroom style group to work through those topics together and deconstruct what we think and hopefully put it back together again in community 
in Je- around Jesus. And then finally, as we come into our seventh birthday, we're going to do a month in Psalm 23, kicking off that kind of seventh year range right there with a month of rest. So just sitting at Psalm 23 and allowing it to restore our souls. That's where we're going. That's the plan. That's in pencil. So I can change it anytime, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty convinced that this is exactly what the Spirit's inviting us into. Unity and maturity, not just as we follow Jesus through his word, but as we do that as a family who's following Jesus, brothers and sisters. And to talk about just that, ladies and gentlemen, Pastor Isaac Rickner. All right. Thanks, Ryan. Let's get down to business here, not losing any steam. So Ryan mentioned that those who meditate on the word are like a tree, right? Sitting by streams of water. And a tree is one of the working metaphors that scripture gives for what the church is. It is like a tree. There's actually, Ryan pointed me to this this week. There is a tree called the quaking aspen. And it is a tree, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's a tree that has genetically identical trees all around it in the forest and they share the exact same root system. They're genetically identical and yet they they have their different characteristics as they grow. They're interconnected on this deep root level but they sprout in all of these different ways. Like I said, a tree is one of the metaphors that the New Testament gives for what it means to be followers of Jesus collectively. The other operative metaphor besides a body, is a family. And that is why we believe that responsible family members is one of the key markers of what it means to be a collective church. And when we are a family, when we live into that reality, it's, it's that we live into a spiritual reality that already is true of us in Jesus, okay? So when you're born, you're born into a family you don't get to choose who your parents are or your siblings are as much as some of us would love to that, that to be part of the deal, right? But when we meet Jesus and we give him our allegiance, we are reborn into a new type of family, a spiritual family. And similarly, we have a new relational framework of our lives that is given to us and not chosen by us. So simultaneously, when we become children of God through faith in Jesus, we are a gospel-made family. So we become brothers and sisters to one another. And so what is most true about us, what Lorenzo had us do when we looked around earlier and we stood up awkwardly and saw each other's faces, right? When we looked around and we saw those of us who are followers of Jesus, the most true thing about us collectively is that we are family. These are things that, that don't make sense when they're not put together, right? The, the, the body, the metaphor of the body in scripture as, as the church, you don't see any kind of like dismembered arms like flailing out there, like maybe on Halloween you do, but this is, this is the way that we reflect God in the world by being integrally connected to one another just as God himself is three in one. It is spiritually true of all who have been baptized into Jesus's body. So a huge part of what it means to be a responsible disciple of Jesus is to live out on this earth what is already seen as a reality from heaven's perspective, that we are family. We got into this a lot over this past year during our collective again series through the book of Ephesians. 
and the pastors, we, we got together and we chose that book coming out of the lockdown phase of the pandemic because we saw how antithetical the way that we had to function during lockdown was to the, visit, the vision of the church that is laid out in scripture. So when we came back together to worship again in person, it wasn't just that our need for physical proximity was finally being met again. That's kind of like an individualistic perspective. How do I get my need for people, community, for social uh, needs getting met? When we came back together, it wasn't that, it was more like a family reunion. And we don't see it that way, typically, because we've been trained to view the church as existing to meet our individual spiritual needs on our individual journeys with Jesus, like Ryan just said, individualist mentality. That view, as we saw during our Ephesians series, does not come from the Bible, and it is completely cultural, and it is even more ingrained than our, in our thinking than we even realized. We discovered that over this past 18 months. And I was really encouraged to hear when many of us, when we came back together and we were able to gather together again in person, people saying, I will never take this for granted again, right? I, I said the same thing, and yet, it wasn't long before other priorities started to compete for our attention, not just on Sunday mornings, but in our, our social circles, and uh, maybe I won't, I'll dip out of discipleship group this week, I have this other thing going on. And that's not bad, obviously, it's like things come up, but it wasn't long before these other priorities started to compete for what should be a main priority of our lives as followers of Jesus. When other options started to present themselves to meet our social needs as if that's the main purpose of our church gatherings. Yeah. It is a benefit, yeah. but it's not the point. Yeah. In the same way that it's unnatural, like I said, for a dismembered body part to be crawling around by themselves, the Bible does not present a framework for Christians living in isolation. As we're going through the book of Proverbs right now, that's exactly what Proverbs chapter 18 verse 1 says. It's not going to be on the screen, so if you want your Bible, open it up. Proverbs at chapter 18, verse 1 says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So the first thing about seeing ourselves as responsible family members is that we need to see that it's a spiritual reality that already is true of us. The second thing about being responsible family is that we need to actively counter our tendency towards isolation. Why are so many people leaving the church? Not just our church. This is happening the church, American church, broadly. Why are so many people leaving the church? You can think right now of a brother or a sister who left for the wrong reasons over this past eight months. More than one, probably. Ryan mentioned it, and it is deconstruction. But the main problem is not that deconstruction is happening. It is that it's happening in isolation. It is a natural process, right? When, when, when we think about examining our convictions, where did they come from? Where did I learn this truth? That is a natural process, but it's happening in an artificial way when we do it by ourselves. We need to examine what we believe and whether it aligns with God's word. But most people are choosing to do this with podcasts and YouTube videos instead of their church family. 
Um, happy birthday, right? So now I, I know I know why this continues to happen in isolation. When we see this happening in our brothers and sisters, we want to stay out of it to give them space, right? Mm. We, we think that maybe we need to have a better platform of friendship in their lives before we speak out against mm. this, but you are family. Mm. You don't need to become better friends before you exercise your duty as a family member. Being spiritual family means that there is a non-negotiable responsibility to one another for our faithfulness to Jesus. Say that again. <laughs> there is a, be, thanks dude. Being spiritual family, the second time, it means there's a non-negotiable responsibility to one another for our faithfulness to Jesus. And listen, there is so much nuance to what I'm saying right now, and all it's in all of your minds as you're thinking about this. We have to do this in love with wisdom. It's so easy to get this wrong and venture into like weird culty territory. <laughs> Right? In fact, many cults use and abuse this language, this metaphor of family, to place an unhealthy burden on their members and make it harder for them to leave. But our identity as family, because we are followers of Jesus, is true whether we're living into it or not. No one is going to force anyone else to live out this truth, but this is what scripture calls us to. And we're actually doing two weeks in our Proverbs series as we close out to address this very thing, how we address one another with our words, both in a, a negative and a positive sense. The sneak peek is that what it takes to exhort one another to follow Jesus is not to be friends with them. <laughs> it's not that you have to be friends with them first. You're not going to be friends with everybody. I'm not going to be friends with all of you as much as I might try, but we are family. And the lie about waiting to exhort somebody before you've built a relational platform with them is that you're creating a standard that is not in the Bible and prevents you from living out your responsibility as a brother or sister. On the other hand, some people get way too big of a kick out of calling people out. And <laughs> you guys, you know who you are, you need to cool it. But that is not, that is not mainly our problem here, okay? That might be a few scattered individuals throughout. That is not the problem that we are facing. We've become accustomed to letting things slide. A questionable comment that you hear from somebody here or there, some kind of uncharacteristic behavior in their lives that doesn't seem like it's becoming of a follower of Jesus. And we think, oh, maybe if it like comes up again, I'll say something, right? Or maybe someone who's in their discipleship group, they already know about that and they're probably bringing it up, right? They're probably talking about it. Which side should we err on? Because we're not going to get this perfect. Like Lorenzo said, we are, it, family is messy, right? Which side should we err on from wisdom's perspective? Proverbs uh, 27 verse 5 says, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. It's not enough just to see that something is going on within somebody's life that you should probably call out and assume that somebody else is going to do that work for you. Even if you mess up, even if you come in way too hot, okay, better is an open rebuke than hidden love. One of the results of the pandemic is that we got way too good at insulating ourselves from the uncomfortable things that we see in the lives of others by retreating into our comfort zones. We saw stuff exploding on social media, politically, 
and annoying extended family members getting into like contentious arguments on Facebook, and we go, I don't want any part of that. And that has been our continued posture in conflicts. We cannot let the state of discourse around us in the world, on social media or whatever, either A, draw us into unnecessary conflict, or what is most often happen, make us gun shy about entering into conflict with, when, with brothers and sisters when it actually matters. And by matters, I mean when faithfulness to Jesus is on the line. Some of you guys in our, in our community have experienced this firsthand over the past year. There were a couple of really difficult instances within our community when a brother had to be called out and it meant that it was going to be uncomfortable, it was going to be messy, it meant that that person had to be like challenged in a severe way, that their lifestyle, that their behavior was unbecoming of a follower of Jesus. And when that person didn't want to hear it, it was really important for our brothers and sisters to hold the line and to not capitulate to this person's emotions. And that was so, so difficult. For any of you guys who were involved, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I just want to say thank you for calling this person to account relationship to Jesus. Thank you for holding the line because that is what we do as family. It is hard, guys. Finally, and to end on a less like sad note, <laughs> being responsible family means that we have a new primary unit of our daily life. In contrast to nuclear family and to our preferred friend group, what is, again, most spiritually true of us, and therefore, what is the most primary unit of daily life is our spiritual family, is this community. The context for our thoughts about how and with whom we spend our time, talent, and our treasure must be this community, primarily. Living responsibly as family members means understanding that the main context for how we steward our resources, not just money, but our time and our talent as well, is this family. The primary context for living out our identity as a disciple of Jesus is not just your job or your nuclear family plus the local church. It is the local church. The context of your calling as a follower of Jesus is the local church. Now, I know that everybody in this room is doing amazing things professionally, and the reason you came to Los Angeles, all that kind of stuff, but actually, God is in charge of that, and all of those vocations do not take precedence over God's plan for your life as a part of this family. We say this pretty often, but we believe that God's plan A for his mission is the local church, and there is no plan B. Hear me. The area that God has placed you vocationally, within your job, within your neighborhood, your roommates, who you live with, is not an accident. It is essential in fulfilling his mission in the world, and that is why we're not called to fulfill our identity as spiritual family by, like, starting some weird commune up in Ojai and making jam, okay? <laughs> It means God has put you in your situation, in your vocation, in your neighborhood, in your apartment complex for a reason. But the main organizing principle, the setting of our story as individuals, the context of our callings is the local church. And this 
This goes way beyond, and hear me when I say this, this is a good thing. It goes way beyond meal trains, okay? Meal trains is great. Those of you who have had new kids in this past year, and like somebody has organized a meal train for you to bring you meals when you're raising your newborn infant and you can't even get out of bed and you look like a zombie, it's amazing. That is one of the ways that I'm so proud of our church family that we've cared for one another in different ways over uh, this past 18 months, even when we couldn't gather physically and people were still having babies. It's awesome to see. It is not less than that, but it is way, way more. Think, of it, think about this with me. Think about what kind of family it would be like when people's instinct for spending a, a new bonus from work or some new money that has just come in is to bless somebody within our community that's in need and not to spend on them, themselves. Or when you have a, a free Saturday with nothing better to do, you spend it with somebody within our church family who's hurting instead of going to Disneyland for the 17th time in the past month, okay? <laughs> Disneyland's great, not hating on Disney. How about when your thought about how God is going to use your abilities, when are you going to get that big break? When is somebody gonna see how talented you are in this area? How about when that fires your imagination about how you're supposed to serve one another in the community? How has God uniquely gifted you to serve your brothers and sisters? How about when singles steward their availability to serve nuclear families by doing grocery runs or taking care of kids? And nuclear families invite single people to dinner, not just as add-ons, but as part of the family. Amen, right? Singles, come on. All right. This kind of love being displayed within a church community is the kind that Jesus said would make it impossible to deny that we belong to him. Lorenzo quoted this earlier. John 13 says, by this all people will know you are my disciples by this, if you love one another. Not if you love the world, if you love one another. And isn't this exactly what we want, right? Isn't the lack of this love what causes so many of our friends and family to question the validity of our faith and of the church in general? It is. <laughs> that is why we're calling our church community be responsible family members and to get more into what I was just talking about about being responsible stewards I'm going to invite up Pastor Lorenzo thanks Isaac there are three foundational things that we need to recognize if we're going to be responsible stewards the first thing is that God is the creator the giver and the owner of everything God is the creator, the owner, and the giver of everything. In his famous speech, Opening Free University in 1880, Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said, there's not one square inch in the whole, dom whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim, mine. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof the world and, and those who dwell therein. And there are multiple other passages in Scripture that essentially communicate the same thing, that God claims ownership over everything. The question is, do we believe it? 
Because it's easy for us to intellectually agree with it, but whether we're actually going to practically live like it's true and not functionally deny it is a different question. Our ability to live as responsible stewards hangs on this theological reality that God is the owner of everything. And when fully embraced, will radically transform every aspect of our lives. It's completely paradigm shifting. So the first foundational thing we need to recognize about stewardship, about responsible stewardship, is that God owns it all, and, pick, and, and because that's true, that means that we then are not the owners, but we are stewards. That's the second foundational thing we need to recognize. We are stewards. A steward is both a noun and a verb. It is who we are, and it's what we do. Stewards, steward. And a steward is entrusted, this is what a steward is, they are entrusted with something that belongs to somebody else. They're given charge of something else. They're given the responsibility to take care of and to do something with something else. And they are responsible for what they do with it. The Apostle Paul saw his ministry this way. He referred to his ministry as a stewardship. He saw himself as a steward of this ministry that he had been entrusted with. Whatever we have, we are stewards of. Could be our relationships, our family, our children, our careers, our health, our time, opportunities, gifts, abilities, possessions, our money, and of course, a thousand other things. Whatever we have, we are stewards of. And if we understand that it all belongs to God, then we understand the necessity of walking in wisdom with all that's been entrusted to us. As we've been looking at Proverbs, going through this series, this idea of what it looks like to follow after lady wisdom. Now, Proverbs doesn't really establish the concept of stewardship, uh, at least compared to other passages of Scripture. There are other portions of Scripture that better establish stewardship, but Proverbs gives us plenty of examples, and we can see stewardship in a form of stewardship uh, really all through the book of Proverbs. Some examples, Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, or produce. I'm a Canadian. I don't know how to say that word properly. <laughs> how do you say it? Produce. Produce. I said it right the first time. Yeah. All right. I shouldn't have second-guessed myself. <laughs> so honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your produce. <laughs> and this verse reminds us that we have a duty to honor the Lord with all that is, that we, all, <laughs> it's, it's actually not ours, well, all that we think is ours, all that we, all that we possess. It says honor the Lord with your wealth. We're told to honor the Lord with our money. And we're to give him the first fruits. It's not to appease him. It's not some kind of weird offering to make him happy with us. But we are to give him our first fruits because what's happening here is it's a way for us to acknowledge that what comes to us comes from him. That's what's happening. It's not just like this weird cut that we shave off for Jesus. So here you go. No, it's an acknowledgement that what I have, I am giving back to you because you are the owner of this, that you have given to me and you have entrusted to me as a steward. 
It all belongs to him. It still belongs to him. God never relinquishes his claim to own anything. Proverbs 27, 18, whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. Of course, the application here is is, uh, not limited to fruit trees, but there's a stewardship principle here that what we give our attention to and how we attend to it will produce certain results. Proverbs 27, 23, know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. Again, the stewardship principle here is that we can't effectively steward what we don't pay attention to. And let's remember who owns the flocks and who owns the herds. In Proverbs 31, verse 20, she opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. Pastor Ryan presented this to us weeks ago as the personification of wisdom. And we see her not withholding, but being generous with those in need. And it is God who has put her in that position to be able to help others by stewarding what she has. Or in other words, by stewarding what he, God, has given to her. It would change everything if we began to think of the stuff that we have as things that have been given to us by God. Okay, cool, Lorenzo, but what about the stuff that I've earned? Because I go to work every day, and I work, you know, 60 hours a week, and I've earned a paycheck. And with the money that I've earned, I bought a house, and it's mine. And then I bought a boat, and it's mine. (laughs) By the way, if you got a house and a boat, we should be friends. I actually don't know anybody who owns a boat and a house, so that's... Completely not realistic. (laughs) But what about the things that that we've earned? And yes, I agree. That would be super confusing if that were a thing, but it's not. We haven't earned anything. We don't own anything. We don't claim ownership rightly of anything. 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you haven't received? If then you received it, which assumes that that's what has taken place, if then you've received it, which we are agreeing to, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This completely changes our paradigm when we think about the fact that God owns everything that we have and that we don't. There's nothing that we have that has not been given to us, including the things that we think that we've earned. God owns it all, and we're stewards of it all. Which brings us to the third thing that we need to recognize about responsible stewardship, and that is, and that, is that stewards serve the owner's agenda. That doesn't, mean, does, that doesn't mean that the steward has no agency and can't use their own discretion because I think that's exactly what a steward does. A steward can't be held responsible if they don't have any agency. A steward can't be held responsible for something that they're They have no ability to use their discernment to manage or care for or take care of. But the objective is to serve, the steward's objective, as he stewards or she stewards, is to serve the owner's agenda, whatever that looks like. And that's what it means to be a responsible steward. Both Ryan and Isaac already touched on this a bit, but they they address various aspects of individualism and the harm that it does. And just as it complicates being a responsible follower of Jesus, and just as it complicates 
being a responsible family member, it also interferes with our ability to be responsible stewards. And that's because it doesn't jive well with serving the agenda of somebody else. Responsible stewardship involves setting aside our own will to do the will of another. And if that sounds vaguely familiar, it's what Jesus did. Jesus yielded his will to the Father, literally saying, we see it in Matthew 26, he said, not as I will, but as you will. So as followers of Jesus, as responsible followers of Jesus, we're seeking to become more like him. He is the one that we emulate. And if Jesus yielded his will to the Father, who are we to think that we are the exceptions? Individualism, individualism makes stewardship really, really difficult because stewardship, by definition, involves submitting our will. And as Ryan and Isaac already mentioned and already established, we follow Jesus together as a family. So when individualism takes root in the church, God's design for the church becomes distorted. God's design for the church becomes distorted, as does our ability to serve as responsible stewards. Growing as responsible stewards is, is, is one of our aims. It's one of our um, core four identities of a disciple. And as we enter in our seventh year, we've been reflecting on where we're at as a church. And, and to be honest, we've had some challenges living this out in a couple of areas that I want to just touch on real quick. The first is in the area of serving, and I'll, I'll, I'll give context and an example for that. When we started gathering again after we were able to, you know, after the pandemic slowed down and all of that, it was really, really difficult to, to find people that were willing to contribute and to serve to help facilitate our gatherings. We were looking forward for the opportunity to, to finally gather again. The opportunity was upon us, but then it was really, really difficult to, to get people to, to serve. And it wasn't out of COVID concerns because we actually had the numbers on Sunday morning that would have uh, supported enough volunteers to be able to serve and facilitate our gatherings, but it didn't happen. And as a result, we had to cut ministry areas, most notably children's ministry was probably the most significant one, and that's back now, but some other ministry areas that we had to cut have still been, they're basically still suspended. And it would be great to, to have open up those ministry areas again. But it was a challenge for us. The good news is that many of you have really stepped up and helped to rectify that situation. And, if, and, and you're regularly serving and, and, and you're doing so faithfully. And so, of course, I just want to say thank you for that. Because, and you can you know, clap for one another if you want. <laughs> thank you so much. Because that's what it takes. We're a collective church. We need one another to help out and facilitate these opportunities for people to come on Sundays to learn about the message of Jesus and to learn about the relationship that we can have with Jesus. And so for those of you that are serving faithfully, you are stewarding well the time that God has given you and the abilities that God has given you. Sometimes it's specific abilities like strange and mysterious skills that you know how to do certain things. Sometimes it's just our physical ability. And some of you know that I spent several months in a wheelchair a few years ago 
And during that time, it really just kind of keyed in for me, you know, wow, I'm going to get out of this wheelchair at some point. And it just made me so grateful for being able-bodied. You know, I walked up here several minutes ago, you know, just to be able to come around and then walk up here would have been an impossibility for me at that time. But now I can walk around and I can stand in front of you, of, of you right now. I've even preached from a wheelchair. But we have the ability. Not, not everyone has to do that or has the ability to do that. So what does it mean for us to sort of just recognize we have the physical ability to get up and walk around and do things to serve other people? I think sometimes we take our physical ability for granted and we just kind of do our thing. But our physical ability and our health is a stewardship from God that he has given to us. But we're incredibly grateful for those that, that have been serving. And so, I, and we ask people to serve once a month. It's a self-scheduling thing. And I'd say, if you've signed up for, to serve, please make yourself available to serve. Meaning, like, respond to the email and choose a Sunday or two a month to, to serve and to help us out. Serving is part of our discipleship. That's where it really, where, that's where the rubber meets the road for us. The ability to reorder our, our priorities and to think about how we can serve other people, that's indicative of where we're at spiritually, and it's part of our own discipleship experience. So even when we need people to serve, to help facilitate a service, that practical need is actually there. I'm not going to pretend it's not. But for us as pastors, our greatest desire for you in that moment is that you would serve as a faithful steward of what God has entrusted to you. It's a, it's a discipleship issue because it's a stewardship issue. We've also had our challenges when it comes to giving this year. When I gave the ministry update at the end of the last quarter, I told you that we really needed to turn around our giving trends or that we'd have some really difficult decisions to make, specifically about the future of our Sunday gatherings and whether we'd, we'd be able to, to keep this venue and continue to gather here in this venue. And we find ourselves in this position, the giving trends are such that uh, there's, there's really two main factors that contribute to, to where we're at right now and, and why we find ourselves in this place financially. First, you probably don't know this, although it might not come as a surprise if you've been around for the last year or two, there's been turnover in our church. A lot of people moved out of the city during the pandemic. And last week I ran some numbers to just sort of get an idea, like what are we talking about here? And that represents a, just over $200,000 in annual giving that isn't coming back. $200,000 in annual giving. That just went gone, bye. So that's part of why we find ourselves in that situation. Secondly, it's not just the fact that, you know, people have moved out of the city and are no longer a part of our church. And by the way, I have told people to their face who uh, I know give faithfully and regularly. I've told them, and they've even said, yeah, we'll continue to give a little bit, you know, on the way out. I'm like, no, join a local church where you moved to and give there. Because I don't want your money. I want you to faithfully serve Jesus as part of a local church wherever it is God has called you to be. And so we've released that. And that's on God, too. He's, he knows. He knows. He, he's in charge. He gets it. But the second thing is that there's room for us to grow in our, in our giving practices, specifically as it relates to proportional giving. Someone pointed out to me earlier this year that I need to explain it a little bit further when we talk about proportional giving. Because he's like, you know, when you talk about proportional giving, people might think, yeah, I give proportionally. I give 1% of my income. 
That's not what we're talking about. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that, uh, and, and in order to correct that, I want to just sort of correct the record and state for the record that we believe and teach that giving 10% of one's income is a good starting point. And, we, and not only is it you know, a nice starting point, we believe it reflects biblical principles. We believe that there's a standard for that in Scripture. We, see, we believe that's seen in Scripture. And the reason why I say a good starting point is because if you really want to get technical, I can make a biblical case for how it's much more than 10% of one's income. So I'm just saying that for reference. Giving 10% of one's income proportionally, that 10% is a good starting point we think that Scripture backs that up. I personally give more than 10% to our church. Uh, I don't say that to boast. I say that to state for the record that I practice what I preach. I know the other pastors also give more than 10% of their income to Collective Church. Collective Church as an organization gives, over, gives away over 10% of what comes in. So that even as you guys give faithfully to the Lord through Collective Church, that flows into other opportunities and does good around our city and really around the country as we support other church plants. Most specifically right now, the relationship that we've entered into with the church plant in Cincinnati, where I was just at a couple weeks ago. And so your obedience and your generosity and your faithfulness in giving proportionally, regularly, generously, and sacrificially is bearing fruit beyond what you practically see in our gatherings and beyond what you experience as being part of our church, our church family. And when it comes to giving to the church, we're serving and investing God's resources in God's agenda. That's what's happening. And as the church... We, as Pastor Isaac mentioned, we are his, God's primary vehicle for reaching people and making disciples. So, so if we're not giving to the church, if we're not investing in God's agenda, the question we need to ask ourselves is how much of what God owns am I going to withhold from his work? And obviously there are those in our church family that are giving faithfully, cheerfully, generously, sacrificially, and proportionally. Someone told me the other day that they have been seeking to stir up other people in our church to do that, which was super cool. I love that. I love that level of ownership. That's not just so that collective church can pay bills. That's stirring up one another towards love and good deeds, like Hebrews 10 talks about. That's, as we just talked about uh, earlier, that's taking responsibility for one another and being responsible to one another and pushing one another to love Jesus and to serve Jesus. I love that. But there are, there are many people in our church that give in accordance with biblical practices and biblical principles, and we're incredibly grateful for you and excited for what this means for you. Even with our giving shortfalls, you've been holding the line by your faithfulness in giving. Thank you so much. But I'd like to share with you some particularly good news on that front, which on one hand I want to say came from nowhere, but on the other hand, and more theologically correct, I want to say came straight from Jesus. Jesus. 
Last week, I received word that a single donation of $250,000 is headed our way. You can clap for that. $250,000. I just told you that due to the turnover in the city through the pandemic, we lost about 200K in annual giving. And here in one donation is, is coming in that more than covers that. $250,000 in a single donation. This is huge. Not only because it's a lot of money <laughs> for obvious reasons, but it's huge in more ways than one. If you were at the prayer night last Sunday night, we just prayed for that. God answers prayer. Jesus provides for his church. And trust me, I say it to you, but I need to know that as much as anybody. I need that reminder. And due to the size of this gift, what it's going to do now is going to buy us some time. It's going to buy us some time to sort of figure out what comes next, figure out our uh, venue situation. We actually have a board meeting tomorrow. You could be praying for us where we will be, we, we will be discussing some of these things. Pray for the board that we would have wisdom. But it buys us time to figure out what's next, and, and, and it's just going to put us in a good spot. So now we can sort of figure out, all right, Lord, thank you for your provision Thank you for your sustaining grace. Now what? Where, where are you leading us now? But here's the best part about this donation. I asked the giver what their motivation was. Because to be honest, some people just have a lot of money and they write checks like the same way they, you know, I don't know, have their morning coffee. Like it, it means nothing to them. So I asked this person what their motivation was. Considering they could have put that money towards other things, other investments, personal real estate. Um, you know, there, I just saw this week that William Shatner went to space on Blue Origin. You can get a ticket on Blue Origin for $250,000, so this person can go to space, but instead he decided to give us this donation. How cool would that be? I've been to space. Have you been to space? You're always going to be the guy in the room, the only guy in the room that's been to space, at least for the time being. But I asked, what motivated you to, to give that money to Collective Church? And they told me, and I loved their answer, they told me that they believed in the mission of Collective Church. They believe in what God is calling us all to do. They believe in what God is calling us all to be a part of. And they specifically mentioned some of the biblical giving principles I shared earlier, which I'm like, yes. Because this is evidence of spiritual fruit in this person's life and part of their discipleship, which is what we're about. And if I had to choose, and I don't care if you don't believe me, this is true. If I had to choose between a few high rollers that backed the church with hundreds of thousands of dollars, if I had to choose between that and then everyone that's part of our church that makes $30,000 a year giving 10% of that, I would pick the latter 100% of the time. Because I'm not here to cash checks. I'm not here to pay bills. We're here to make disciples of one another and to give proportionally to one's income, whether that's actually a lot or not a lot, is what matters. To faithfully steward what God has given 
to us. We can't rely on large donations to carry us. We can't expect others to make up for our own lack of giving, if, if that's the situation, if that's the case with you. Each of us is a steward of what we've been entrusted with. And so in case it's not clear, we see giving as primarily a discipleship issue, not a budget issue. And how we give is an indicator of our spiritual maturity and health. Even with this large single donation, we still have our work cut out for us. If you're part of this church, I would ask you to reassess and reconsider your giving practices. And if you have questions about nuance or what about this and what about that, um, because I know that that can be a complicated issue. If you have any questions and you want to talk about it further, I'd be, I'd be happy to discuss that with you. I remember being a new believer and trying to figure out what is God's claim on my money? What does that look like? How do I be obedient with the things that God's entrusted to me? And I screwed it up for a lot of years, trying to be good, actually, trying to follow Jesus, trying to do the right thing, and I needed to be gently corrected so that my giving practices and the way that I related to what God entrusted to me was more aligned with, uh, with our, uh, a theological reality. So to those that are already giving in a way that reflects the biblical giving practices that I mentioned earlier, I just want to say thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And this is not about, you know, trying to squeeze a little bit more money out of you. That's, that's not what this is about. So those are two specific areas that I wanted to address as your pastor in order to encourage you towards responsible stewardship. While responsible stewardship includes our money, it's about so much more. It's not just about money. It's about waking up every day and thinking about what we're going to do with everything that we've been given. And you might say, well, I haven't been given that much. I don't have that much. It's like, it doesn't matter how much you have. You've been given what you have and you were a steward of what you have. So it's not about how am I going to spend my day, but how am I going to spend his day? It's not about what I'm going to do with my money, but, but what I'm going to do with his money, how I'm going to steward his money. It's not about getting a new job so we can level up, but seeing our job as an opportunity to serve Jesus. It's not about where I want to live, but where he is calling me to live as an embedded, as an embedded missionary for him. So on that last note, and I'll leave you with this, the most significant thing that we steward is the gospel itself. We have been entrusted with the gospel. As Isaac said, he mentioned that we are a gospel-formed family or a gospel-made family. And we've been entrusted with the gospel to reach people and make disciples of them. We're called to live as embedded missionaries and ambassadors of his kingdom. And it's not something that any of us get a pass on. It is the calling of every follower of Jesus to be a disciple maker. And so I'm going to have Pastor Ryan come now and finish us out. Yeah, as Lo just said, the, the purpose of our stewardship, of us looking over all that we have, with that posture of, God, how am I to leverage this for the sake of your kingdom, is directed at this final element of what it means for us to be a unified and maturing community family of these followers of Jesus. It is that we are disciple makers. 
We do not exist for ourselves, but to reach, teach, and equip others to follow Jesus themselves. This was Jesus' commissioning call. Lorenzo talked about this earlier to his, uh, to his church, early church leaders 2,000 years ago. Following Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he gathered up his disciples and he said, Now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. No matter what you say after that sentence, it's going to mean something. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's one preacher who said he could say, I want you to now be purple unicorns. And you'd have to go, well, I guess that's what we have to do now. All authority belongs to him. But what Jesus calls us to, after saying that he has all authority, is to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, in the midst of that calling, I am with you to the end. Jesus is with us, and his calling has not swayed or gone anywhere. We are called to go and to make disciples, to invite others, to investigate the person and the work of Jesus, and to learn to keep and observe for themselves. Now, this disciple-making call has newly perceived uh, profound importance for us. As we look, again, going back where I was a minute ago at the American church, as we see those broken pathways of mis- and malformed disciples— We need to return to what it means not only to be disciples ourselves, but to begin leaning into patterns and rhythms of life which ensure others are being invited along for the journey. Where we make space at the table, we create room in our gatherings and in our discipleship groups where we are regularly okay with adding chairs, with dividing and and creating new discipleship groups for the sake of those who are looking and investigating and asking, who is this Jesus guy, that there's always a place at the table. There's always a seat in our gatherings. There's always room in our discipleship groups. And that requires stewardship and family thinking as we've been talking about. Because that process is what's often referred to as evangelism or preaching the gospel, having gospel conversations. It's the main thing we've been called to. It's the main thing that all of this overflows out into, whether we call it evangelism or, you know, hundreds of years ago, the Prince of Preachers is what he was called, Charles Spurgeon. He referred to it as soul winning. Not just evangelism, not just, you know, gospel conversations, but winning souls. And he actually got this language from his old King James translation of Proverbs 11, verse 30. You'll see it behind me. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures, wins souls is wise. Wisdom, what we have been called to, maturity and unity, is shown in the ability and pursuit of capturing or winning souls of captivating people from all walks of life to follow Jesus for themselves, to find resurrection hope and forgiveness and transformation and new life in and through Jesus. This is what wisdom looks like, winning people over into the story and journey. How do we captivate people to that vision? The beginning of verse uh, 30 tells us, by becoming a tree of life. This reminds us that the purpose of wisdom, going back to Psalm 1 a moment ago, is that when we enter into this work of unity and maturity, we become like this flourishing tree of life, not just receiving it for ourselves, but becoming a source of that experience of life for those around us. That we become this embodied portrait of the wisdom and life and the union and maturity of Jesus himself as we then move out into our workplace and our relationships and our community.
We win people over, not solely by our words, as important those are, but by the very nature of the sort of people that we become, the sort of community that we are. And so at the risk of over-repeating myself, it is our unity and our maturity that are going to serve as the greatest tools of evangelism in the, in the, age, in the life, that, in, this, this, in your generation and mine. If you want to know what is evangelism, it's not going to be, yes, as important as apologetics and having all the theological answers for everything and the Bible stuff is, I'll, you know, I'll be here all day for that stuff. The most important, the, the sharp, the secret sauce of soul winning in our generation is going to be by having a community that's unified and being a people that are maturing. Because what we find ourselves in is a context and an age that is so rapidly deteriorating and individualizing and isolating and continues to celebrate immaturity as, 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 I mean, every celebrity, every politician, what is the thing that your newsfeed is filled with is evidence and evidence after of immaturity and even immaturity being celebrated. And those two things don't lead to tree of life living. And so what we are able, when we live into this, is we present a portrait of the sort of life that's available to all. One that runs counter to our world of immaturity and unity if we lean into it. And so this is what we're called to do. We are called to steward all we have, to live as family members and to follow Jesus so that people may find a captivating portrait of Jesus. And as we do so, we simply replay out the very same story that has been true in you and me. Because for those of us here who are followers of Jesus, and again, for those of you here that you're like, this is my first Sunday I've been in a church, or like second, like you're new to this thing, like, welcome. <laughs> sorry for the family meeting tonight, today, but also not sorry, because we want you to see this is what we're all about, yeah. that this is what we're inviting you into. We don't have anything hidden behind where there's some you know, weird culty thing. We're about following Jesus as family members and stewarding all we have to care and serve our city and following him themselves. But for those of us here who are followers of Jesus, the reason that you've committed to this way of life, the reason that you've committed to collective church and this calling is because Jesus himself has captured your soul. He has captivated you with his righteousness and his wisdom, with his life, that he is the one that binds us together as wisdom. He is why we are bound together as family, with him as, as the Apostle Paul refers to him as our big brother and, and God as our father, that we are now brothers and sisters because of Jesus. He is the reason why we steward all we have because he is king and we give all we have for him. And he is the reason why we would invite anybody to this. There are millions, we live in Los Angeles, trillions of better things you could be doing on a Sunday if Jesus is not captivating and real. We live in Los Angeles. We could go to the beach. I'm just like, I'm not going to do that. We could just go down the list. Let me go get taco. Let me just go down the list. There's millions of things you could be doing. And the reason why we give our Sundays, and not just our Sundays, but our lives to this, is because we found Jesus and his resurrection power as the captivating source of how we live. And because Jesus' life, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, his sending of the Spirit to dwell in you and me and guide us, what a miracle, and his promised return to make all things right in this world. This is what Jesus has set before us, and that's what we've been captivated by at some stage, at some point in our life. And the invitation for us today, if all of this so far has been kind of like, okay, cool, maybe exciting, that's a lot of money, like Isaac's really nice, uh, Ryan went too long, that whatever's going on here, 
that the main thing that if you walk away from this and you're maybe excited a little bit, if you are not captivated by Jesus once again, then this is all for naught because that's why we do it all. That's what we're inviting people into. That's why we're stewarding. That's why we live as family members. That's who we're following is Jesus. And the invitation for you and me is to be captivated by him. For those of you that aren't there yet, keep coming. Keep joining us. Bring your questions. Bring your comments. Bring your concerns. We've got them too. And yet we've found Jesus captivating. And so as we move into a time of response, I'm going to invite those of you that are followers of Jesus today to remember, as, as the old Christians used to say, remember your baptism. Remember your story of what brought you here and who Jesus is and what he's been to you over these years. And what would it look like for you to lean in this next year into a greater revelation and experience of just that?